our next speaker uh, I'm proud to announce is Dr. Jennifer Cather. Uh, she is a medical director at Modern Dermatology and Modern Research Associates in Dallas. She also serves as the co-director of the Cutaneous Lymphoma Clinic at Baylor University Medical Center. Dr. Cather has been an investigator in more than 100 clinical research trials in the area uh, of psoriasis and cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, has authored numerous abstracts and manuscripts, and is on the editorial board of several journals, including the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology. Dr. Cather lectures on investigational therapies in psoriasis, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, and melanoma. Uh, frequently serves as a consultant with these disciplines as well. She is an active member and participant in many dermatology organizations and societies, including the National Psoriasis Foundation. Uh, please join me in welcoming Dr. Cather. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. And this alone is worth you getting up, okay? Microphone down the dress on the boot, huh? Isn't that quite impressive? Yeah, that, uh, the AV guy, good idea. So anyway, I'm going to be basically focusing on um, the adult female patient with psoriasis, but I'm going to give you some overview. I know there was a great NPF pre-meeting to this meeting, and so you probably have seen some of this before. Um, and so I'm here in Dallas, Texas, and I have a nurse practitioner who works with me and a PA named Brooke who works with me. And if you ever have any questions, feel free to email me. This is my disclosure. Um, and this is our agenda. So we're going to look first at the impact of psoriasis in women. We're going to look a little bit at a brief immunology overview, like if you blink, you're going to miss it, because I know it's too early in the morning to immunology. Uh, we're going to look at how do I actually treat patients, which I think is important for everybody to know. And we're going to look at a series of cases about women, and then a little bit on pregnancy and lactation. So this is psoriasis, and I did not do a lot of psoriasis but I will, uh, in my residency, and I'll tell you, when I trained, um, nobody was looking at these inflammatory cells. They were all looking at this, you know, so if you look at pulsing methotrexate, they were targeting the cell cycle of the keratinocyte, and they didn't realize um, that they actually should be looking at the effect of methotrexate on lymphocytes. And so that was um, really in my training that people were looking at the cytokine milieu that was happening and uh, various rashes. And the lady who trained me, uh, her name is Madeline Duvick, and she would always pull these papers on the cytokine or the immunology of rashes. And I, and I think that everybody thought she was kind of voodoo-ish. Um, and then lo and behold, every rash we see has a unique cytokine profile. And, and that's great because we can target it. Okay, so again, psoriasis is an immune-mediated disease, um, and this is a really dynamic disease, too. And so there's episodic flares. Um, there's few spontaneous remissions. Um, trauma is probably the, the one thing. There have been a, a few lawsuits where, where people have gotten in some traumatic um, event, and you know, trauma probably allows your um, immune system to see novel antigens, and if you get away from the trauma, maybe your psoriasis will go away, but um, that's really 
few and far between. Um, itching and pain is really underappreciated. So I think when you're seeing your patients, I always ask them, where's your disease? How is it bothering you? And you know, before probably five years ago, people weren't looking at itching and pain. Um, I really like Neurontin because it helps with itching and pain. And you do it at night as a nighttime dose, like 100 to 300. Um, there's a genetic susceptibility and environmental triggers, and it affects about 2 to 3% of the population. There are a number of comorbidities. The ones I don't want to miss, I don't want to miss psoriatic arthritis, okay, because that's a no longer considered a benign arthropathy. Again, my textbooks when I was training, they said it was a benign arthropathy. Now we know that there's a real destructive component to psoriatic arthritis, and I think that we're really not doing um, uh, our patients any good if we don't ask about joint symptoms at every single visit. Remember, their skin can be clear and their joints can be progressing, all right? so every single visit. Um, we've seen um, uh, some patients with the comorbidities of Crohn's and the monoclonal antibodies that target uh, TNF are your treatment of choice for those patients. There's a bunch of patients with metabolic syndrome, obesity, diabetes, um, and I don't know um, as far as what's causing that, I don't know, but I know that, um, that if you're toward your ideal body weight, your psoriasis will get better. Cardiac disease, so there are people out there that are dying of heart attacks and they have psoriasis. So your severe psoriatics, and what I mean by that is the people with you know, body surface areas, you know, 10 to 20% with um, childhood onset, those are the people you really need to be worried about. So when people come into your clinic and um, they're you know, the older patient, I always ask, when was your onset of your psoriasis? And I usually put my patients on a low dose of aspirin um, if they have significant psoriasis, because that inflammation is related to um, heart attacks. Um, myocardial infarction, stroke, death, depression, depression, huge, okay? So um, when you go back to clinic on Monday, I want you to look at the concomitant medications, all right? And, um, and it's amazing how many people are on antidepressants or mood-altering drugs. It's at least 50 to 60% um, in, in our clinic. Um, and we, we have a, um, a referral-based clinic, so I know that that's not gonna be true for uh, people that don't have significant disease. The um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and NASH. Um, this is the big problem with methotrexate in this disease population. And um, if you look at the rheumatologists, um, they'll say, oh, you don't need liver biopsies. And that's because they have these skinny people. Um, and you have our patients who have some metabolic syndrome. This person, she is going to bump her liver enzymes if you put her on methotrexate. And so remember that. Um, the other thing is that um, smoking, you have to address smoking and you have to drink alcohol. Uh, you have to drink Alcohol. You have to drink alcohol before my lectures. Oh gosh. Okay, and you have to address alcohol at every visit, and I'm going to do that in a, in a few minutes. Okay, so. If you look at, let's look at the physical impact of psoriasis, the higher the number, the more it impacts a patient, okay? So psoriasis is second only to congestive heart failure as far as how does it physically impact a patient. I didn't know that. I mean, um, so anyway, mental impact. How does psoriasis mentally impact patients? Well, so depression is the number one thing, um, and then chronic lung disease is, an, uh, is the number two thing. And then, then we have psoriasis. So, so, you know, the emotional impact that this disease 
has on patients really varies as they go on in life, and I'm gonna touch on that in a minute, um, like in about 30 minutes. And so um, I always ask people, what can you or can't you do, um, and, and uh, how does this affect you? And, and I think that the psychosocial impacts are really important in our young, disease, uh, in our young patients, because this affects them, and then it affects where they go in the workplace, it affects their social relationships forever, because there's this window of opportunity that you get to meet and greet people, and um, if they have psoriasis, a lot of times they're uh, reclusive. Okay, so um, I'm a big systemic medication person. Um, so if you look at the majority of people with moderate to severe psoriasis, they're not in treatment, and if they're in treatment, they're on topicals only. So um, I'm, I'm the person that um, is always into pills, shots, and infusions. So, um, and if you look at um, your patients who come in your door, ask them what they've done, ask them what they wanna do, and a lot of them, even now, like Melody and I are still seeing patients patients that have no idea pills and shots and infusions are out there. And that's kind of impressive being in Dallas, Texas, where we have like three great psoriasis treaters, you know, and so, and Christine, I think she's here. I mean, she's a great one. Mentor, um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of good. Um, and, and then William Abramovitz. I mean, there's really great doctors here that are actually passionate about it. And still, you know, we have people weekly that have no idea that there was anything else besides their Dovonex cream. Drives me crazy. Okay, what are your complications? Why, why bother, okay? Well, um, the inflammatory um, disease burden in the skin, remember, red, hot, itchy, painful. Um, the elevated systemic inflammation has been linked to comorbidities, the impact of quality of life. Um, and then the economic impact, so think about this. I mean, so um, people miss more work with their psoriasis flares, um, and, and they actually are not as productive. It takes about an hour uh, a day to put on topicals if you have more than like 10% body surface area, if you're doing them the right way. And um, remember, a percentage is the palm of their hand, okay? so. Um, a lot of people are spending an inordinate amount of time dabbing creams on spots. Okay, so the undertreatment of psoriasis, again, I'm hitting on it here. So if you look at the moderate to severe, they're only getting topicals, okay? Very few are getting phototherapy, and I'm gonna show you some data from our clinic. Um, and then, you know, this is systemic therapy like methotrexate, um, cyclosporin, acetretin, hydrea, and then these are biologics. And, and this isn't actually budging very much. This is actually old data, I admit. But if you look at the market share, this is not actually going up. Um, except in my clinic and probably Mentor's Clinic and Christine's Clinic, okay. All right, so how does psoriasis impact the, the daily life? Uh, nearly a half of respondents report problems sleeping. Can you imagine going to bed in pain, waking up in pain and not getting a good night's sleep? That would be pretty impressive to, to have that. So um, as far as how does it affect them on a daily living activities, nearly three quarters said it did. Impacts um, daily life, a third of respondents report disease interfered with their sexual activities. And so um, this is not just women. It is amazing to me how many men have genital uh, involvement of their, uh, with their psoriasis. And you know, we don't ask very many questions. So, so I'm gonna tell you one thing, when you go back to clinic, ask them where their disease is. And I mean, I specifically say, is it on your genitalia? Is it on your privates? Is it on your hoo-ha? Whatever you have to say to get that point across, where is it? Because 
they're going to smear Ultravate under their breasts and get stretch marks or on their penis and scrotum and get terrible stretch marks, okay? So you need to make sure they're using the right medicines. We have a collection of um, people in our clinic that have psoriasis only on their genitals on biologics. And, um, and we didn't arrive there um, being cavalier. We arrived there because we needed it. And so this idea of you have to have 10% body surface area to justify a systemic intervention, that's not true. Think of your pommel planter involve, involved patients. Think of your scalp only people that have that helmet head of psoriasis. And think of your genital patients. And, th and that's something that I think is being overlooked. Okay, daily activities. Can you imagine shaking this hand? Probably not. We have resorption of digits down here. We've got lakes of pus down here. They can't stand. They can't shake hands. They're constantly in pain. So again, these are pretty severe patients. Okay, so multiple studies have consistently shown that psoriasis has a greater impact on women. Why is that? Well, think about all the things that women do. Um, you know, our hair's colored, our nails are done, um, and fashion. Um, is, is more difficult as well. So here's our brief immunology review, all right? You ready? Here it is, okay. So five years ago, we did not know a lot about dendritic cells. So the take-home message, dendritic cells are important. They're the primary producers of IL-12 and 23, and IL-12 and 23 happen to be super important for psoriasis. And then this new cytokine, it's not really new, but we're really exploring it a lot more. IL-17 is really important as well. So, so. Um, Three years ago, what did you hear about Th1 cells? Now you're gonna start hearing about Th17 cells, and those are really important in psoriasis. And so we've got things that target each and every one of these. And no longer should you be looking at keratinocytes. Okay, so just remember brief nomenclature. I didn't know how much you guys had this. It's in your syllabus or whatever. And then these are the approved biologics uh, to date. And so if you look at it, the majority of things, um, the Atanercept, the Infliximab, the, um, uh, you uh, the uh, Infliximab, Atanercept, where's Adalimab? Yeah, Adalimab, can't do my alphabet. Um, those are TNF uh, antagonists, okay? And then the newest thing on the market is you stick in your map here and that targets IL-12 and 23. Okay, what are we worried about? Well, we're worried about um, several things. Injection site reactions don't really bother me so much, okay? I think they happen, but I don't think we usually take people off therapy for them. We worry about infections, okay? So anybody who has um, the opportunity to be on a biologic has the opportunity to get a PPD, okay? Or quantifying gold or something because they need that and they need that yearly. We worry about hepatitis B reactivation. That's a relatively new thing in the last two years. Demyelinating disease. So what does that mean to me daily in clinic? If I have a uh, patient with a family history, a first-degree relative with multiple sclerosis, optic neuritis, or they have optic neuritis, they are not usually going to go on a TNF antagonist. The causality is not 100%, but it makes me a little bit nervous. Malignancy. So I always tell people that your psoriasis, you have an overly active immune response to something. I don't know what it is. And I'm trying to use a drug that is kind of like trying to make your seesaw go to equilibrium 
program. And so um, the theoretical risk is that there's an increased risk of malignancies because you're down-regulating their immune response. Hepatotoxicity, um, remember these people have um, NASH, they have non-alcoholic uh, fatty liver disease. We see hepatotoxicity. Um, we have seen it with the biologics as well. And then this new onset psoriasis with the anti-TNFs, a lot of those patients are our Crohn's or our rheumatoid arthritis patients um, that develop psoriasis on the drug, and that's kind of interesting and difficult to treat, and I'm not really going to go into that. Um, and then there's also change in morphology of the patient's psoriasis on TNF inhibitors, and that, that's been seen, and that's fairly rare. Uh, okay, this is Point Lobos in California, my home state. I just like to look at that. Okay, so this is my practice demographics here in Texas, though. So Melody Young, who's a nurse practitioner, and I um, went out on her own um, and uh, in January of 2006. And so we started drilling down into our demographics to see, okay, what are we doing? Um, you know, what are we good at? Um, and we have a research division, so you know, where are our potential trials? So we've got a bunch of people with psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, a bunch of eczema patients, um, and then a bunch of rosacea. Um, Two-thirds are women and a third are men, and that's pretty unique um, uh, for, for us anyway. We have, a, we have like 19 girls in our clinic, and there's not one man. Um, and I and I'm always stunned that men come in because they're like entering the woman cave. Uh, we've got like pink towels. Okay, so practice, um, what, are, what are we utilizing? Okay, so the only thing I really want you to know is that phototherapy in my clinic, it's not for psoriasis patients anymore. And I, and I can't 100% um, validate this, but I really think it's copays and the increased effectiveness of therapies and people becoming more comfortable with them over time. All of our phototherapy now is for graft versus host, um, which I, I'm um, uh, really interested in graft versus host, and T-cell lymphoma. No psoriasis patient is on um, uh, phototherapy. Um, the other thing is that we are big biologic users. So in my clinic, um, we sit down with you and we give you all your options and you are not required to have a treatment failure on the majority of insurance plans in Dallas, Texas anyway. Um, all right, so my systemic medication workup. All right, so before you put anybody on a biologic, you wanna make sure they're healthy. And so women need pap smears. I wanna know about when your last pap smear was. I wanna know if you have HPV. We've had some people with pretty significant cervical dysplasia with HPV, and I'm nervous because I can't see your cervix, and I don't know if you're gonna do okay on biologics. So if you have a high-grade um, HPV infection or if you need cones or you know freezing, whatever, um, I want you seeing your OB-GYN like every six months. I write a letter to the OB-GYN telling them you know, that they're on an immunosuppressant. Um, mammograms, I wanna know when the last mammogram is for uh, patients. I, um, I have been known to order mammograms, and then gotten the results and panicked because <laughs> I don't know what to do with them. Um, but it's weird to me how many patients consider me their primary care provider, which is scary. Um, okay, colonoscopies and prostate exams. Uh, real important. Um, and I always tell people, you're paying for it with your taxes, so you might as well use it. So everybody deserves these things. I want to know their cancer and infection history. Um, as far as infections, I want to know about MRSA. I want to know about staff in the family. I want to know about pets, if they have MRSA history in the past, because um, pets are just fomites for MRSA. And so, um, you know, if you ever wonder where your uh, patient's getting MRSA, they could be getting it from their dog or cat, and I'd have them looked at. Vaccination history. Before you put anybody on a biologic, vaccinate them up. Um, 
total body skin exam, all right? I cannot tell you how many skin cancers that I find on patients with psoriasis. I can't tell you how many skin cancers I've missed in my patients with psoriasis because they're all covered with psoriasis and then the plaques go down and then I've missed a keratoacanthoma and it was in the middle of a psoriasis plaque. So when people come in and they're on therapy, I always ask them, do you have any spot that is different from your usual psoriasis? And then you're gonna find a Bowen's. I don't think the drug does, I don't think the drugs did that, but I think that you were just looking at bigger things things at the time. Weight and blood pressure. So um, when people come in, we talk about diet, and I tell them that your adipose tissue is a sink for TNF-alpha. It's just spilling it out. And so um, TNF-alpha is like gasoline for your psoriasis, and um, even the strongest medicines might not clear you if you are overweight. And so we like to try to get some intervention as far as um, getting them down to an ideal body mass index. It's interesting, I brought a, a nutritionist into my clinic um, because she had psoriasis, and I actually paid her to come in, told all our psoriasis patients, and there were like six people that showed up out of, you know, like 1,200. <sighs> Not worth it, but those, and those people didn't even do anything different, but the, the weight thing is a big deal, and I really think it's somehow related to their psychosocial um, access. Blood pressure, um, uh, you know, that's mainly for cyclosporin. Social history, um, I want to know when are you having children? I want to know, you know, what are your thoughts as far as if you're going to get pregnant? Um, what are you going to do with your therapy? Um, I want to know about tobacco. Same thing holds with tobacco as it does with increased body mass index. I have people that smoke and they've got pommel plantar involvement. They're on the best drugs on the market and they don't get clear. You got to stop smoking to clear your psoriasis. And there's a lot of data out there that says smoking makes psoriasis worse. And if you're a woman, beer makes it worse too, right? We saw that recently. So I want to know about alcohol, all right? So um, if they're heavy drinkers, I think that's important, um, uh, more so if they're on methotrexate. Um, Family plans, we talked about that. So these are my labs that I do for my um, new patient, you know, thinking of going on a systemic. Um, the uh, HIV, a monogamous uh, person, long-term relationship, especially if they've had a kid recently, you know they've already been checked for it. I don't check HIV every year. Um, TB test yearly, all right? That's the most important thing. Um, and then we do high sensitivity CRPs. We're looking at systemic inflammation with that, and there's not a lot of data that supports you doing that, but I'm interested in that. Um, why would I ever look at that? Well, let's say somebody has arthritis and skin involvement. Their skin is clearing, their joints aren't perfect, and their high sensitivity CRP keeps climbing. I'm probably gonna change therapies if we wanna get control of systemic inflammation. All right, screening for tuberculosis. Remember that a PPD of greater than five millimeters is positive. Um, and if they have a positive PPD, you do a chest X-ray, um, and then you treat accordingly. Um, we always um, treat, if they've got a positive PPD um, and a negative chest X-ray, we always treat them with um, uh, INH for nine months. I always send them to infectious disease. I've got enough problems, and one of my best friends is infectious disease, so I share the risk, as Dr. Leonardi says. If they they've got active tuberculosis, you've got to treat them to completion before you actually start the um, immunosuppressive therapy. If they've latent tuberculosis, positive PPD, negative chest x-ray, you can start them on their INH and start their biologic concomitantly. Now the one thing that's interesting is if you think about INH, it is horrible on your liver, all right? So you got to make sure people are going to be compliant with that, and then you got to make sure they're going to be tolerating that from a liver standpoint, and if you're going to start a biologic 
you're not going to know if it's the INH or is it the biologic if they get any kind of um, hepatotoxicity. I don't worry about liver enzymes until they're over five. And this is quantiferon gold. So quantiferon gold is an ELISA test that is much more specific for mycobacterium tuberculosis, and it measures the elaboration of interferon gamma from lymphocytes that have been uh, that have seen mycobacterium tuberculosis. So, so in Dallas, um, let's say they have a, a positive PPD and a negative um, quantiferon gold, they're still treated. So I don't know where the utility of this is yet. Um, I have people that drive like eight hours away from us, and I guess there's no other doctor there, but they go to the health department. They don't do PPDs. They don't do chest x-rays. They just do quantiferon golds. This is not standard care to do um, quantiferon golds without PPDs. Maybe someday it will be. And then there's another test called the T-test, which I've never done, um, and that's another more specific mycobacterium tuberculosis test. Okay, now we got the clinical stuff, my favorite stuff. And then um, why am I focusing on women? Well, okay, so women are really dictating the healthcare for the family. So I want you to think about, um, you know, last time a guy comes in your clinic and you're like, okay, your follow-up is in two months. What is the most common thing they say? My wife will call and make that appointment. She'll check our schedule. And so my thought is, since we're not really seeing an increase in the market share um, with our traditional, you know, um, uh, ways of educating people, perhaps if we treat women better and educate women more, they will actually increase um, these medications, the access of these medications to the family unit. So there are a lot of women, as I told you before, that have seen five to six dermatologists only given creams, had no idea um, systemic medications were available. Melody had one lady today who saw a really great dermatologist and she was crying in our clinic about 30 minutes because she goes, nobody told me, and that's horrible. Okay, um, so I'm gonna look at, these cases mainly were to um, give you a little bit of insight to things you might see, okay. So case one, the early teenager, okay. So this is a girl who has psoriasis and she got it after a strep throat flare. So let's talk about strep throat. If somebody has more than like six strep throat um, uh, infections and they're flaring their psoriasis, I would tell you to get them a tonsillectomy because that's really gonna help. It's gonna be a lot cheaper than putting on biologics for the rest of their life. Um, my post-strep flare people all have antibiotics in their house because um, they usually are going to get sick on the weekend, it seems like. And so they might as well just have their antibiotics and treat, and I am the cause of antibiotic resistance in Dallas, and I'm very comfortable with that. Because if I could do something to prevent this, I would. Young girl, um, she's had this for greater than um, uh, six months, so I'm not a big advocate of treating gut tape flares or post-strep floors uh, flares with biologic, except if they've had it for a while, okay? So, um, so we put her on a Tannercept, all right? And so we have our before and our after pictures. So let's talk about this a little bit. Okay, so young kid, you think she's gonna be able to go to the pool in Texas? Probably not. Um, ethnicity, really important, because remember, you get a lot of dyschromia with psoriasis. They can go darker or lighter. That can last six to nine months, and it's really hard to keep them clear. So I need to get this person cleared quickly, all right? So my other options for this person, I'm not faulting you. If you do it, you could do cyclosporin. I mean, that that's great. So um, the problem is with cyclosporin, remember, it's for a year use, okay, in the U.S. They do it for two years in the U.K. Tons of people pulse cyclosporin after gut tape flares, and that's okay. This person had long-standing psoriasis, so six to 12 months. So um, I assume she's going to need biologics for years, and I like a Tandercept for my younger patients. 
So etanercept in the pediatric patients um, had really um, nice safety profiles in, for skin-only patients, for our psoriasis patients. Um, it has been withdrawn from the FDA um, for consideration. So if you look at the other diseases, etanercepts um, used for rheumatoid arthritis, they're on a lot of concomitant um, therapies, and so there, is, um, uh, there was some concern from the clinical trials. I have no concern using etanercept in my pediatric patients, and I would rather put my kid on a Tannercept than methotrexate or cyclosporin. Okay, and so um, in the pediatric data, I would never look at these, uh, but I just wanted to let you know that um, when you go on a Tannercept, if you're a responder, and especially if you think about it, pediatric patients are kind of low body mass index patients. If they do well, they're going to do well for it for a very long time. And so, um, and there's data out, safety data out to 96 weeks. And then so in adults, um, there was another trial that kind of looked at real-world use of the etanercept. So in adults, they looked at safety out at 96 weeks, and what they found was whether you're doing 50 milligrams once a week or twice a week, the safety was identical. So that gives you a little bit more um, comfort, I would think. Um, the majority of people that are higher body mass index patients, I'm not going to put them on etanercept. I'm usually going to use a monoclonal TNF inhibitor. Okay. Case number two, young adult. So this is a girl who looks like she's flying, um, but she has really bad palmoplantar uh, involvement. Um, she has insulin-dependent diabetes, fairly bad diabetes. She's had psoriasis for three years, and they start after strep throat. She has no arthritis. Her past therapies, and it, it should be really listed, Ephelizumab used to be my drug of choice for palmoplantar psoriasis. Um, she did Ephelizumab. Ephelizumab's no longer on the market. We did cyclosporin to transition her off. Then we transitioned her to adalibumab. Adalibumab did not hold her disease. She is a non-smoker, and she's going to college. And so what did we do? We did ustekinumab. So this is a thinner girl, and I'm going to show you some stuff. So she was um, uh, a thinner girl, and this is what she looked like after two injections. And, so, um, and she's still in our clinic and still clear. So what is ustekinumab? So ustekinumab is the latest comer to the market. It's indicated for the treatment of adult patients 18 years or older with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis who are candidates for phototherapy or systemic therapy. There is not a lot of data using um, this in palmoplantar um, uh, patients. However, we really need something for those patients that were doing great on Raptiva that haven't responded to other things. It targets the P40 molecule, which is found in IL-12 and 23, and I'll show you that. Um, it's a sub-Q injection. You give it at baseline, which is week zero, you give it a month after that, and then you give it every 12 weeks, and it's a weight-based dosing, as much as, as you can say that. So you use 45 milligrams if they're under 100 kilograms, 90 milligrams if it's over 100 kilograms, and I like that, that we have something that's a little bit tied to weight because of what I told you about adipose tissue. Okay, so this is just a snapshot of IL-12 and IL-23. So the common molecule is P40. And if you look at the old um, uh, data on this, which was probably you know journal articles four or five years ago, everybody thought it was IL-12 that was really important, and it ends up that it's actually IL-23 that's really important. Um, and so there are molecules in development right now that are just targeting this to see what you get if you just uh, block out the P19. IL-12 promotes the differentiation of naive T cells to Th1, and that's what we've been, you know, formally looking at for psoriasis. More importantly, IL-23 promotes the proliferation and survival of Th17 cells, and those cells are probably the cornerstone of psoriasis and the pathophysiology. 
okay, so Phoenix 1 and Phoenix 2, we can look at this data collectively because they had the same inclusion exclusion and the same data points. So again, um, you did a shot at week zero, you did a shot at week four, you did a shot 12 weeks later. The primary endpoint was at week 12, and there's some other data out at um, uh, 28. So um, they looked at 45 versus 90 versus placebo. And this is what it looks like at week 12. And so the 45 milligrams, 67% of patients got to a posse 75, 72% got to a posse 90. So this is a very high performing drug. So there is a head-to-head -head trial that um, is out and they looked at a tanercept compared to 45 milligrams used ustekinumab compared to 90 milligrams used ustekinumab. So, so if you look at this, um, the people on ustekinumab were given it at week zero and four, either 45 or 90, and the etanercept was 50 milligrams twice a week. And then they actually collected data at 12. So how did they do on those various arms? And then they looked at, okay, for non-responders for etanercept, if they have a physician global assessment greater than three, what happens if you treat them with ustekinumab 90 milligrams? So that's the higher dose, okay? Um, and so we have a little bit of data. So what do we learn from this study? Um, 90 milligrams of ustekinumab outperforms the 45 and the double dose of tanercept. And the people that were on a tanercept that were non-responders, when you switch them over to ustekinumab, um, and there was a four-week delay with that, um, that they were very high-performing too. So 48.9 and 23.4% got a posse 75 and posse 90 response. So. Um, this is, a, this is a really important thing. I love um, that this study was done. Okay, so safety. I, I wish that they had carried out um, the safety for the etanercept arm uh, longer so we could actually make some uh, big thoughts about this. Um, really, um, I'm gonna just tell you the people that died because everything else looked pretty interestingly fine across the board. So there was a motor vehicle accident in the etanercept uh, group, a gunshot wound in the 45 milligram ustekinumab group, and then a person who had HIV who had methicillin resistant staph epi, and that's not a typo, it was actually staph epi, who died, and he was um, uh, bacteremic at baseline, and so um, that was the death in the uh, ustekinumab. So we have um, used this in over 100 patients to date. And so um, we see great improvement in the skin. Um, it's difficult to predict the outcome for psoriatic arthritis. And it's so interesting because now we're getting referrals and people are on a TNF agent and their joints are quiet. And you know what? You can have joint disease and when you take them off a TNF antagonist and put them on ustekinumab, the joints become a bigger issue. And I want you to remember that. So every visit you see them, ask them about their joints. There are other people that their joints were never controlled on TNF antagonists and we put them on ustekinumab and they're better than they've ever been. So I don't know what to do with that. Um, my treatment of choice if you have any joint disease is always gonna be a TNF antagonist because there's more data showing that you you limit the progression of joint disease with the TNF antagonist, and there is really no data on the ustekinumab. Compliance is high um, because they're in your office, but people are wiggling already. So you have people that have never been cleared, you clear them, and then they're like, well, can I come two weeks late? Um, I like um, the fact that um, 
uh, you can call them and say no. I, I like the every 12-week dosing. We have interval adjustments. So we have people that are actually at an interval of every eight weeks instead of every 12 weeks because they're not responding as well as I would like them to. That really is um, only important in your 90 milligram patients, okay? So if your patient uh, who's on 45 and you're like, oh, they're not responding as much as I want, so I'll decrease the interval, there's not a lot of data that supports that. However, if they're on 90 and they're not doing as well, then I would um, write a letter and shrink their interval to eight weeks and, and usually see a better outcome. It's pregnancy category B, but there's no um, data to support its um, uh, use in pregnancy or lactation. Okay, so this is case number three, and this is um, a patient who I've had for a really long time. She's 55, and she was 93.4 kilograms. Her past medical history is gastric bypass, so for your morbidly obese patients that walk in the door, the um, interesting conversation you should be having is about gastric bypass, because when they lose weight, their psoriasis becomes a lot different, okay? So I, I've actually written several letters for gastric bypass for my psoriasis patients. Um, and um, she also had hypertension, adult onset diabetes, depression, hypothyroidism. She had significant psoriasis, and we really don't know about arthritis because she had a lot of degenerative changes like pains in her knees and hips and could never get a psoriatic arthritis um, diagnosis. Her past history is methotrexate, and she had early fibrosis on her liver biopsies, and, um, and she was also on a tannercept, and that's not really fair because that's what she weighed when she was on a tannercept. So that was a really huge woman who um, you know, was on a tannercept intercept and um and she didn't do well. So we put her on adalibumab, and, um, and this is what um, she looked like, uh, and this is what she looked like. This was like maybe six months ago, and she's still clear. She's crystal clear, actually. This was really life-changing for her, and you can actually even see she continues to lose a little bit of weight. Um, this was really life-changing for her because she got off the majority of her uh, medications except her thyroid medicine, and um, she's able to go and do stuff. So adalibumab, um, there was uh, the REVEAL trial, and on the REVEAL trial, they, they followed people out, and they were looking at how effective, how safe, and the safety is nice for adalibumab, um, and then as far as how effective, there's never been a head-to-head -head controlled trial without alivimab and eustichinumab. But again, just like a tannercept, the majority of people who respond are going to do fine on it um, out years and years. So there's a little bit of data switching from one anti-TNF agent to another, and how I approach this is, if somebody has arthritis and bad skin disease, and let's say um, they are on um, a, a tannercept, let's say, and let's say they're not doing well, but they have joint disease, I'm going to add methotrexate before I abandon um, a tannercept. I'm gonna sit with them on you know, their methotrexate, 15 to 20 milligrams a week, with their tannercept, um, and then if they're not responding, then I'm going to abandon it and go to another um, TNF agent. If you have somebody who comes in your clinic and they've been on two TNF antagonists, I would not ever do the third one. I would switch drugs, um, because there's uh, diminishing returns after they have been uh, non-responsive to two. Okay, so TNF antagonist, treatment of choice for psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis. Patients with hepatitis C, they get less um, hepatic fibrosis. Um, if they're on um, a tannercept specifically, there's data with all, uh, with the monoclonals as well. The higher body mass index patients do better on monoclonals. There's synergy with methotrexate, and then rotation within the class is possible, but diminishing after two. So who do I have on a tannercept? Um, I gotta see a bone. To, ha to have somebody on a tannercept. So, you know, this is uh, a patient who is close to their ideal body mass index. This is a patient who is not. She's going to go on a monoclonal. Um, and again, I see a spine. I don't really see a spine. She's going to go on a monoclonal. 
Okay, so the TNF inhibitor label changes, and I think you can read about this in your syllabus. So um, the pediatric malignancy warning. So remember, a Tanercept is not approved for pediatric psoriasis patients. Um, and so even though I showed you a case, it was actually not approved for that 14-year-old. Um, and then monitor, monitoring um, updates. So remember, any biologic, you need to be doing yearly PPDs on this. And remember, if they're on a biologic, their positive is five millimeters. And then neurologic reactions as far as vasculitis. Um, okay, four, the non-compliant patient. Okay, so 32-year-old comes in. She's 106 um, kilograms, no real past medical history. Um, she does have psoriatic arthritis and massive plaque psoriasis. So somebody comes in your office and they have been on all these medicines. Okay, the first thing you say, you just start writing it down, say what happened with that, what happened with that, what happened with that. So I actually know what happened with that because she's my patient, she's non-compliant. She blew through all these biologics, I could never reintroduce them, and so she shows up when a new drug gets um, approved and I put her on Ustikinumab. She has not been clear for years. She is clear and she's already wiggling, going I'm not really sure, I wanna do the 12 weeks, can we try you know, uh, 14 or 16 or something? And I'm like, why would you do that? So it's crazy, so if you clear them, um, they're still not being compliant. And if you don't clear them, they're not compliant because they're all mad, which I understand because this is a big deal. So, but I, I was, I was um, always amazed. Um, okay, so case five, the risk adverse. So there are patients who are gonna walk in your clinic that need a therapy, but um, are nervous, okay? So the person that needs a therapy that's nervous, if they're not a woman of childbearing potential, um, I'm gonna do seriatine. I would think about light, um, your patients with cancer histories, light and psoriatine are very nice, um, aside from the skin cancer uh, patients. So this is a lady who has a history of optic neuritis, and she's obese, and she's got plaque psoriasis with no arthritis. Her past medicine was acetretin. The claim to fame with acetresis acetresin is that it's slow and it's incomplete, and that's kind of what we saw with her. Didn't do much. So she was on Alephacept, and I, this was one of my first Alephacept patients, and I still use Alephacept. Um, I have not had a new Alephacept start in probably two years, three years probably, because there's other things that I think work better, but it's a really safe drug, and think about that. Um, the people that don't buy into chronic disease control, like constant injections, well, this is very intermittent. They do it 12 weeks on, 12 weeks off, and then they can redo it when they, um, when they need it. How many people do I think actually do this? Less than 10%, it's hugely rare. And then um, this is what she was in 2003, and this is what she was in April in 2010. Okay, so um, the safety um, has uh, been established. It's considered a safe drug. Okay, pregnancy and lactation, last thing. Just to remind you, acetretin and methotrexate are pregnancy category X. So you wanna make sure that you do not put a pregnant person uh, or a person trying to get pregnant on either of these drugs. And remember, acetretin, I don't do in women of childbearing potential at all. So I want a hysterectomy, tubes tied, something, um, because there is a residual since it's lipophilic. Um, cyclosporin is pregnancy category C. Um, we've um, used cyclosporin during pregnancy. Remember the problem with the blood pressures? Um, Anti-TNF agents, alephacept, and you stick them out of our pregnancy category B. And we have biologic registries available. Anybody who has a pregnant psoriasis patient on a biologic, I urge you to get them in the registry because the hardest phone call to answer at the end of your day is a woman calling you 
frightened that they're pregnant and they have significant disease and they're on a biologic and they're worried they're hurting their baby by being on therapy, okay? The majority of women in our clinic, if they don't have arthritis, we are stopping the biologic and that is because the OBGYNs are not very comfortable with it, which I always think the best drug in pregnancy is no drug. But um, there are people that have destructive joint disease and you usually can't stop it. So, um, um, you know, a third of people get better when, they have, when they're pregnant and they have psoriasis. A third of people get worse and a third I don't know what happens to them. And then um, Otis Registry, this is a great thing and you should get on their website and look, they've got great handouts for patients and they have a new one about Retin-A and pregnancy, it's kind of great. And then there's pregnancy registries for um, Enbrel and, and Humira too. Okay, lactation. It is harder to treat a lactating woman than a pregnant woman, in my, in my opinion. So, um, so, you know, if they're getting uh, acetretin, cyclosporine, methotrexate, they should not breastfeed. The anti-TNFs um, are usually not used, and, um, and there's some conflicting results about the presence of the TNFs in breast milk. Um, remember that the TNFs, anti-TNFs, have been used during infertility trials, and so um, that's why when a pregnant person comes in and they know they're just kind of newly pregnant, I, I'm, um, I'm okay with it. You know, I'm like, look, they've, they've had small numbers of patients, but, you know, it does control chronic inflammation. I cannot tell you how many people get pregnant when they couldn't get pregnant for years because we're controlling their inflammation, and so I think that's a really interesting thing. Okay, so in summary, psoriasis significantly impacts women, as it does men, but we've talked about women today. Um, and so women have unique needs, okay? So um, women uh, get their hair done, their nails done, they have different fashion um, issues, they have different responsibilities um, as far as what they're doing in the society. There's limited data um, available about pregnancy and lactation. And remember that women are frequently um, the caregivers for the whole family, and so if you have a psoriasis patient in your clinic um, and it's a guy, I would encourage you to address this with their significant other um, uh, because I think that that will be helpful. And the hardest thing is to spend 15 minutes with a, uh, a guy regarding a systemic medicine and then have the wife call you and say, why are you trying to kill my husband? It's good if they're just there on, in on the conversation the whole time. Thank you. Do we have any questions? There he is. Yes, one question. Uh, many of us aren't as aggressive as you. I remember when you were an early teenager riding your bike in OC, I still have a scar on my leg to prove it. We knew how aggressive uh, you would be after watching you on your bicycle. Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of what percentage would you say of your patients on systemic therapy would you use adjunctive topical therapy? Oh, okay, so the question about adjunctive topical therapy, I think that the majority of people on systemics, whether they're traditional systemics or biologics, they have hot spots. I don't think that our goal should be absolute clearance with systemics, um, and I think that there's always a little bit of scalp. You know what's interesting? If you think about um, the Kebner phenomenon, people get into behavior patterns um, and they pick their scalp. You're going to need something, you know. So I think that the majority of my patients on systemics are on some kind of topical. But the topical, by the way, is usually a steroid and not, um, you know, not one of your really cool drugs you talked about earlier. Oh, I'm sorry, I was late. <laughs> I'm messing with you. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Hi, um, do you have any rules that you follow about switching between biologics? 
Okay, so the question is, do I have any rules to follow about switching between the biologics? So um, the, my only rule is I do not like overlapping biologics, okay? So um, I have people like, let's say they're a non-responder on adalimumab, and they've got bad joint disease, um, higher body mass index, and I'm gonna move them over to infliximab. I will write my letter to get infliximab, you know, going, and I will dose them with adalibumab. Let's say they have their last dose on Friday, I will still infuse with infliximab the next week. So there is no washout in between biologics. Does that help you? Okay. And, um, you know, the other thing is, like, it's great to bridge things, right? So um, if you have a non-responder on a drug um, and you know, um, like I talked with you about, you know, whether it's a tanercept, adalimumab, or infliximab, you know their synergy with methotrexate. And before you abandon one of them, I would add in some methotrexate because I think you're going to get a better result with that. And it might become a more acceptable disease state at that time. And I would keep them where they are instead of throwing a drug away. So, um, and, and then I'd bridge it. So let's say you're gonna switch from adalibumab to infliximab. You add your methotrexate, you stay there for a couple months if they can stop, you know, stand it, and then I would keep on the methotrexate and add in my infliximab. Yeah, yeah. Hi, do you hold drug for the annual um, PPD? For any of the drugs? Okay, so so wait, I'm not sure I understood that. So do I hold the drug? Yeah, for, so like for a week or two weeks prior to the PPD. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so so let's talk about our new um, psoriasis patient that walks in the clinic. So if I have a new psoriasis patient that walks in the clinic, um, the first day I meet them, we lay out a treatment plan, and you know we go down to we usually pick two drugs because if insurance doesn't accept one, then we'll go to another one. Um, and so we'll do a PPD the day I meet them. They come back, we have let's say a positive PPD negative chest x-ray, I put them on their INH, and I will usually wait two to three weeks to start them on their biologic because I want to make sure they're compliant and I want to make sure their uh, liver enzymes are okay. Um, let's say, this has happened a lot, um, let's say a person is cruising through doing great on a biologic, you do your PPD and it becomes positive. It's a treatment emergent positive PPD. We add a negative chest x-ray. We add in the NIH and we keep going, the, the uh, INH, sorry. <laughs> Okay, so th that's another whole situation. We do not hold it. Yes. Uh, we have young patients that we want to start on a biologic. They have significant psoriasis. They've done topicals. Um, it's really affecting their quality of life. We do baseline labs. We'll do LFTs. They come back completely normal. These patients have no comorbidities or significant past medical history. About a year into therapy, we repeat labs, including the um, liver function tests. We do many times see elevations in the ALT, the AST, and we start, I know, you know, I know it's a, I know it's a complication, not complication, it's a frequent side effect that you will see those elevations, but our comfort zone starts to just get uncomfortable seeing those rise, and I wonder how you justify, not justify, but what do you suggest? Where do you draw the line? Do okay. you, do you... Uh, increase the frequency with which you're dosing. Okay, so let me tell you, but, but stay there, because I want to make sure I get your question. Okay, so so let's say a kid comes in, all right, and are, uh, let's say they're on methotrexate, and let's say their liver enzymes go up um, greater than five times normal. I'm in abandonment therapy, all right, so um, because I don't like messing around with methotrexate with increased liver enzymes. Let's say they're on a biologic, and it's three times normal. I don't care. Move on. You know what? If you think about all the things that happen. Okay, I've got two children, all right? 
three ear infections in the last month, okay? So there's a lot of intercurrent things that are gonna happen that are gonna bump your liver enzymes. We usually do liver enzymes on biologics every three months. Okay. And, um, and then if it's on like methotrexate or cyclosporin, like every six weeks, I do not see liver enzymes elevations on cyclosporin. Um, it's in the package insert. Um, uh, methotrexate is the only thing that bothers me about anything you see that, that you've said. Um, I have a bunch of kids on you know, like a tanner set, like I told you about. And I mean, we don't see liver enzyme creep, creep, creep. So if you see like two or three times where it just keeps going, I think that you're reasonably, you know, um, concerned, absolutely. But if you just get one blip, I'm not worried. I would recheck it. Is These that... are on our adult patients, our young adult, meaning yeah. 20, 30. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, that's a kid? Okay, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, actually, young adult, they're drinking. 20, they're totally drinking, I'm promising you this. And they're doing, they're doing all sorts of stuff and stuff. I mean, tell them to stop drinking. In fact, I am such a bitch. I will tell them, I know if you're drinking. And I mean, okay. and they'll sit there just dumbfounded, you know, I'm like, you're drinking because my drugs are good. So, okay. so I promise you it's alcohol. Right. I will stand on that on, okay. on trial with you saying it was their alcohol. Yeah. And their crack. Okay. Um, <sighs> Is there anything to support the use of biologics in a woman who's had breast cancer years past? Okay. And then a second question about um, multiple sclerosis and then family member and maternal aunts are okay. not first, first okay. degree relative. Thank I got you. ADD, you got to stay there. Okay, so ah. breast cancer. All right, breast cancer scares me, all right? Mm -hmm. I have a, only a handful of women who have had breast cancer that I've treated with biologics because I worry about delayed, you know, um, uh, recurrent disease. Mm -hmm. I have, I, uh, my other best friend's an, um, an oncologist, isn't that handy? Mm -hmm. Infectious disease oncology, I'm kind of saved here. Um, and so, I always look at this as a patient-driven thing, and I'm very frank with them. I tell them your increase of infections and cancers, and you say cancers, not malignancies, um, may be increased on these drugs. And um, again, you're going to find the patient that is incapacitated by their disease, or they feel like it is. Remember, because this is a psychosocial, touchy-feely thing, that they're going to accept the risks. So um, I actually have a guy with metastatic prostate disease right now, not doing well, climbing PSA, and he's like, look, I can't live, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, so again, he's not so impressed with my seriatine and light, and I bet you he jumps over to something else, but I'm nervous, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think you really have to in, engage the oncologist. They will have no idea, by the way, but right. I think that you need them to talk to their, to their patient. And, you know, because I don't know, there's all sorts of different kinds of breast cancer. What is the likelihood you're going to get a delayed recurrence, you know, five years down the road when they're going to be on the biologic? And you know what's <laughs> going to happen? The husband's going to sue you, okay? So, I mean, so in the room should be the significant others for whoever this is, because you have to have a very frank discussion, and, um, and, I, and I've done it. So I have people on biologics with cancers um, and with histories of melanomas and things like that, but I don't just go and throw it around. It's for a really good reason. Okay, the second question with um, multiple sclerosis. So... Um, I have about five people who have a history of multiple sclerosis in their family, and um, uh, two of them actually have active multiple sclerosis, and those two are the biological choice, in my mind, is, is you stick in your map, uh, because at least they had an MS trial showing that it didn't make it worse. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really interesting, and I know this is off the subject, but one of them is a guy, and he has some kind of insurance um, that uh, required use of a Tanner set before I used you stick in your map. 
So that's interesting. Yes, Active multiple sclerosis, got the neurologist involved. Neurologist writes a letter, did not accept it. Um, I write a letter, neurologist writes a letter, neurologist sends a copy of the MRI. <laughs> that worked. He's on Ustikinumab now. So, so um, the first degree relative is, is a uh, serious concern. And so um, I, um, a I'm a little bit biased because my grandmother had MS and a lot of people know that. So I am nervous about MS. The causality is not there, but I know what my grandmother went through. And so um, if you look at some of the rechallenge data with the TNFs, I mean, some of the rechallenges weren't positive at all. So I mean, I think again, debilitating joint disease. Yeah, I have a guy with multiple sclerosis on a biologic that's a TNF antagonist right now. He was a computer programmer, couldn't move his hands. You know, and this was before you stick any map came out. So I think you're gonna get one-offs and all those things. And again, just full disclosure and follow it with the neurologist. And the neurologists are very, very familiar with TNF and tags because of Linerset. So they, they already know about all this. So I would I would share the risk and just make sure people are adequately followed. The lady with um, history of breast cancer has a rheumatologist that that feels strongly opposed to biologics. Yeah, they're sisters. Do they yeah. Say that again? They're sissies. I'm oh, kidding. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it's funny that the rheumatologists are always going to pick methotrexate. So, um, uh, you know, it, 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 so um, a couple of my breast cancer patients are actually on methotrexate because the oncologists are very familiar with methotrexate because they use methotrexate. And the problem with that is these are some of these are young women and you're going to have to do something else after a while. What else? Awesome. Okay, now if I can get down here without the microphone pulling off my dress, this would be great. Thank you for having me. And, uh